Today on Blue 58, the 49ers only lost three games this season. The Packers hope to make it four on Sunday. How? Let's turn to the 49ers' losses and see what we can find out. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode. Don't know if you've heard, but the 49ers are a really darn good football team. They are going to be tough to beat on Sunday, but they are not unbeatable. Three teams did it in the regular season, each in different ways. And I think it would be instructive for us to dive into each of those games. I think looking at losses is instructive because you can really see what kind of team you've got when things don't go well. You can learn a lot about yourself or your football team through failure. A loss is the ultimate failure in a zero-sum game like football. So what do these losses tell us about the 49ers? We're going to walk through each of these three games, and if you'd like to dig into some of the numbers yourself, I am including links to the game books for each of these three games in the show notes. If you've not seen one of those before, you should take a look. It's a single document that kind of summarizes everything that happens in a given game, uh, from information about what happens on every play, to stats that you don't get in just a typical box score, to stuff like attendance, weather, All kinds of interesting stuff. Even the amount of snaps a certain player plays. Give it a look. It's in your show notes right now. So the nuts and bolts of these three 49ers losses. First, what games are we talking about? Three losses. Week 10, uh, they lost 27-24 to the Seahawks. That was an overtime game. Week 13, the 49ers beat them 20, or excuse me, the Ravens beat the 49ers 20-17. And then in week 15, the 49ers lost to the Falcons by a score of 29 to 22. Starting with that first one, week 10. Seahawks 27, 49ers 24 in overtime. This is a wild kind of sloppy back and forth game. How wild, how sloppy. Two defensive touchdowns happened in this game. The rest of the scoring was mostly field goals. Five of them, a couple uh, both ways. Uh, San Francisco raced out to a 10-0 lead early in this one. Seattle rallied then to take a 21-10 lead. Then San Francisco comes back to tie the game at 21 with 6-21 to go in the game. Seattle goes up 24-21 with a minute 29 to go. Then San Francisco ties it as time runs out. Ugly overtime period two. Both teams held the ball twice before Seattle finally kicked the game winner. And here's how those possessions broke down. Seattle threw a pick. San Francisco missed a field goal. Seattle went three and out. San Francisco went three and out and punted with just over a minute and a half left. Then Seattle takes over at its own 36 with a minute 36 left. Drives to the San Francisco 24. Uh, The biggest play in that drive is an 18-yard run by Russell Wilson. Then they finally kick the game winner as time expires in OT. Just that close to having a tie. All in all, a very stupid game. Football is stupid sometimes. Sometimes you have sloppy games. Sometimes you have tight, well-played games. If you want to talk about tight, well-played games, I think loss number two for the 49ers fits the definition there. This happened in week 13 again. Ravens 20, 49ers 17, the final. Neither team led by more than seven at any point in this game. Baltimore scored to go up 14 to seven with 12.02 left in the second quarter. But San Francisco tied it at 14 with just 9.22 left in the second quarter. Other than that time, about 2 minutes and 40 seconds of game time, which in real life time could be anywhere from 2 minutes and 40 seconds to like an hour, the margin was never more than 3 points other than that little time in the game. 
Things get really interesting in this one with about 12 minutes left. Both teams seem to really push their chips in and start making some big bets in the form of going for it on fourth down a couple times at really key spots. The Ravens got the ball with 12.21 left in the fourth quarter on their own 41-yard line. They advance the ball to the San Francisco 40 before Lamar Jackson throws incomplete on both third and fourth downs. Then San Francisco takes over, 9.38 remaining. They've got the ball on their own 40. They advance to the Baltimore 38 before Jimmy Garoppolo then throws incomplete on a fourth down. He can't complete a pass on fourth and one. So with 6.21 remaining, Baltimore takes over at their own 30-yard line, and they engineer a fabulous 12-play, 39-yard drive to kick a 49-yard field goal as time expires. There were 310 scoring drives that took 12 plays or more in the 2019 regular season. Only six of them covered fewer than 39 yards. But that's all it took for the Ravens to get it done against the 49ers uh, that day. Rounding out these three losses, week 15, the Falcons take down the 49ers 29-22. to Atlanta comes into this game at 4-9 and with nothing to play for. San Francisco comes in at 11-2 and with essentially everything to play for. And as so often happens, both teams kind of played against type. Yeah, sometimes you do expect the team with nothing to play for to play a little bit looser, but San Francisco has all the incentive in the world to play as hard as they possibly can, and it just doesn't seem like they quite get there because Atlanta is able to hang around all game just close enough that one drive could swing it. And wouldn't you know it, that is exactly what happened. The 49ers went up 22-17 to with a minute 52 to go, and Atlanta took over after a good kick return at their own 35-yard line with a minute 48 left. 11 plays later, 11 plays in a minute 48, they are in the end zone. They missed the two-point conversion, but with just a few seconds left, they are up 23-22. to So on the ensuing kickoff, San Francisco tries to do the lateral thing, get something going. They fumble into their own end zone. Atlanta falls on it. Game over. Final score, 29-22. By the way, for those of you who may be interested in gambling information, of course, for entertainment purposes only, the over-under for this game was 50 points. Prior to that fumble into the end zone, the total score for the game was 45 points. Hmm. That information may be of interest to some. My question in this game is how did Atlanta, who had been essentially butt to this point in the season, stay so close? Part of it was San Francisco's fault. They fumbled four times, losing two of them. One of them was that game ender, but they were lucky to come away with just the two if they put it on the ground four times. But the big one here is that Atlanta forced San Francisco off the field in third downs. 49ers were just 4 of 12 on third down conversions in this game. And that's something we're going to come back to here in a second. But stepping back, what do these three games have in common? What can we learn about the 49ers from these three games? Before we dive into any conclusions... I would like to caution against drawing big conclusions, again, uh, from just three games. This is a thought experiment as much as anything, trying to see if there's anything that you can pull out of these games. And to that point, I'm not really sure you can draw anything at all from that loss to the Seahawks. That was just a wild, weird game. So a couple caveats there. 
What can we learn? What do these games have in common? Well, first, in each of these losses, the 49ers never scored more than 24 points. And all season long, when they've been able to get their offense rolling, they've been pretty darn good. In games where they score 25 or more points, they are 11-0. But in games where they score 24 or less, they are 3-3. Three and three. Yeah, shocking revelation. I know it's harder to win scoring fewer points. But the why, I think, behind their scoring is more important. What games, what situations led to them scoring fewer points? Well, these next couple points are going to tell us. Turnovers, another big common factor in these games. They had at least one turnover in each of these three losses. Two of those three losses featured multiple turnovers. It is worth noting that the 49ers have overcome a lot of games with multiple turnovers. They won one game uh, with five turnovers, and they won five games where they turned the ball over two times. Turnovers are not a death sentence for the 49ers, but getting them to turn the ball over is a good step towards winning. Finally, circling back to that third down point, on the season, the 49ers converted 90 of 200 third down opportunities. That's just a hair over 45%. But against Seattle, they were 6 of 15, 40%. Against Baltimore and against Atlanta, they were 4 of 12 in both of those games, 33%. Getting them off the field is crucial. So slow down their offense however you can, usually through turnovers or getting them off the field on third downs. What else should we consider here? As we point out every week in our previews, close games are crucially important. Single-digit wins. For our purposes, we're going to look at a couple that are outside of the seven-point range that we usually use, but it's real close to that. The 49ers had a bunch of single-digit games. It came up for them in Week 3, Week 7, Week 9, Week 14, Week 16, and Week 17. Six times they had single-digit wins. What can we learn from those games? Let's dive into a couple takeaways from each of those. Week 3, they beat the the Steelers 24-20. They trailed until they had the ball on their last drive. Jimmy Garoppolo throws two picks in this game. It's worth pointing out this is the first game the Steelers played in 2019 without Ben Roethlisberger. First full game, that is. He left their Week 2 loss partway through. Week 7, they beat the Redskins 9-0. They couldn't get their offense really going at all in this one. It was 0-0 to halftime, and the passing game was especially bad. Jimmy Garoppolo was 12 of 21 for 151 yards and an interception. No touchdowns in that game. Week 9, 28-25, the win over Arizona. This is a good example of, uh, hey, those other guys get paid too kind of game. These are all professional football teams, and the Cardinals were not great this year, but they shouldn't lay down for anybody. One of those guys on the opposing team that does get paid was Kenyon Drake, who had just been traded to the Cardinals a couple days before this game. He goes 15 carries, 110 yards, and a score on the ground. Four of 52, four catches, 52 yards in the passing game. Not a bad afternoon for him. And a good reminder that anybody can play well on any week and give even really good teams a hard time. That, I think, is the big takeaway there. Week 14, the 49ers squeaked one out in a shootout over the Saints, 48-46. Another one here that's hard to pull anything from. The takeaway, obviously, is if you score 46 points against the 49ers, you should just make sure you don't give up 48 points. 
Generally speaking, score 46 points and don't give up 48 is good advice if you're trying to win football games. Worth noting, though, that San Francisco had zero sacks and just three quarterback hits in this game. They are known for their defensive front, but they were not getting to Drew Brees on this particular afternoon. Maybe you want to crank up the speed in your passing game to avoid them uh, getting to your quarterback. Something to consider. Week 16, 34-31 win over the Rams. Another bad Jimmy Garoppolo game. He goes 16 of 27 for 248, a scored in two picks. You hesitate to pull stuff from box scores too much, though, because we know stats can lie a little bit. Uh, Because the 49ers did have some pretty explosive plays in this one as well. Six different players, in fact, had an explosive reception in this one. Uh, as we define it, a catch of 16 yards or more. The Rams also did a good job of getting to Jimmy Garoppolo. They had six six sacks and eight quarterback hits. If there's a recipe the Packers might be interested in following, that might be it. Finally, one last one-score win for the 49ers. Then we'll try to see what the Packers could do with this knowledge. Week 17, Packers gunning for a one seed. They need the Seahawks to beat the 49ers, and they get close, but not quite close enough. 26-21, the final. The 49ers win. The Seahawks made this a game. They were down 13 until just a shade under six minutes left in the third quarter. 13 to nothing, in fact. They hadn't scored yet. The game was also 26-14 with under six minutes to go in the fourth quarter. Seattle finally scores to pull within one score with 340 left, making it 26-21. They get the ball back, but have just a terrible sequence down by the goal line. They complete a pass to get down to the San Francisco one. Russell Wilson spikes the ball with 23 seconds left, but then they commit a delay of game penalty. So it's first and goal from the San Francisco five. Well, second and goal because they spike the ball. Russell Wilson throws incomplete. Third and five, another incomplete pass. Fourth and five, they complete the pass just short of the goal line to Jacob Hollister. He comes up just short, does not score. Turnover on downs. San Francisco takes over, runs one play, and it's over. There is a controversial defensive pass interference. No call in there as well, but I'm not here to really litigate that. You can search that out online if you'd like to look into that yourself. Again, another pretty good game all around here. A limited possession, grinded out type game that the Seahawks managed to keep close within shooting distance the entire time, even if they were down 13 at that one point. That's still a two possession game. You could take the lead in two possessions, in fact. There were only 17 total possessions in this game. Average game is well into the 20s. One of those, in fact, was just two seconds long at the very end of the game for the 49ers. So, really, 16 possessions here, a close, tight game again, much like the Baltimore game. So that's a bunch about the 49ers and what they've done this season. I think we're, we're ultimately up to nine games here. So either losses or one-score games, that paints a little bit of picture for us about who the 49ers are, how they handle things in those tight games, and what leads to them being tight games. So what do the Packers do with this knowledge? It seems fair to me to assume that the Packers know everything that we do and more. So it's not like we're laying out a game plan for them. But If we were the coaches of the Packers, what should our goals be? First, I think we'd want to limit the overall possessions in this game. Extend drives however you can. So that means avoiding big negative plays like sacks, penalties, and the other things that shorten drives. Fewer overall possessions means a tighter game, which in turn gives you a better shot at having the ball last and winning it. Getting the ball late against the 49ers 
seems like a crucial position to put yourself in. You want to be in a position where you can force them to have to defend on one last drive. Secondly, we'd want to get San Francisco off the field however we can. Yeah, this is kind of a no-duh sort of thing, but those third downs are crucial. They cannot be allowed to extend their drives because if they really get rolling, they're taking time away from you, they're running up the score, they're making it possible or perhaps impossible for you to get back into the game. Finally, we're going to want to get to Jimmy Garoppolo. Another sort of no-duh sort of thing, but still, if you're looking at San Francisco's overall roster, their weakest point, or most maybe a better way of putting it is their most exploitable point might be Jimmy Garoppolo. If you can make him uncomfortable, you might get him to make a mistake. And mistakes, for our purposes, as coaches of the Packers, are good. It's easier said than done because San Francisco's O-line is pretty good, but it could be easier now since they're facing a couple injuries up front. It also could be less easy because they've gotten some guys back that made their offensive line a little bit better. But If you can get to Jimmy Garoppolo, if you can shorten the game, if you can force them into a couple mistakes, if you can get them off the field on third down, you're at least giving yourself a chance. Because the number one thing that came through doing all this research about the 49ers today was that they're a really good team. Even in losses, they are really hard to beat. There's a good reason that they have a pretty solid record in these one-score games, They're a really good football team. They are the one seed for a reason. The Packers need to play a really excellent game on Sunday to have a shot at winning. It is very doable. It's not easy, but it is doable. And I think there are some things that you can learn from these games, as we've shown, that are going to help you get that win. Now for something completely different. Got a question today about something that we really haven't had a chance to address here on the podcast in significant detail. Krister would like to know our thoughts on Ryan Grant. He asked, why isn't he being activated and used in any way? Is he just not good enough or is there any other known reason? That is a good question. Thank you very much for asking. Krister also notes in his question, the part that I didn't read, or a part that I didn't read, that his favorite player is Lucas Patrick, in part because Patrick has an awesome mustache, which is as good a reason to like any football player as I have ever seen. I agree. It is a very excellent mustache. I like Lucas Patrick a lot, too. So Ryan Grant, this is certainly one of the weirder roster situations in recent memory. He was signed by the Packers way back on October 16th. This was, to refresh your memory, two weeks after Devontae Adams had gone down with his foot injury, toe injury, whatever, uh, against the Eagles. Uh, Marquez Valdez-Scantling was also hurt at this point of the season, was dealing with some knee and ankle injuries. We weren't quite sure what we had yet in Alan Lazard. Geronimo Allison had not quite fallen off the earth just yet. There seemed to be reason to add another wide receiver. So the Packers signed him. And then nothing, and then nothing, and then more nothing. And now here we are in January, and Ryan Grant has not even played, not even been active for game day. Wasn't even possible that he could play for the Packers. Despite being on the roster since October 16th, there was no chance where he could have played. So why not? Packers beat writer Ryan Wood reported this back on December 5 from one of Matt LaFleur's press conferences. Uh, He says, quoting from a tweet now, 
Uh, LaFleur says wide receiver continues to be a competitive situation, and Ryan Grant will be called up to the game day 46 if it's determined he's earned the promotion over someone else. So far, that hasn't been the case, end quote. So three months later, Ryan Grant can't get ahead of Geronimo Allison on the depth chart. That, to me, would seem to be a little bit of a problem. So why, if he can't get ahead of Geronimo Allison, if he's not an option you're looking at ahead of Jake Kumaro, Alan Lazard, although that doesn't make any sense anymore, Marcus Valdez-Scantling, who has struggled, if he can't play ahead of those guys who have clearly not contributed a ton, why is he still on the roster? To answer that question, I'll have to quote Tevya from Fiddler on the Roof, my favorite musical. I'll tell you, I don't know. It's strange. It's weird that he's been on the roster for this long. No other player on the roster has been inactive for that many games without ever being active. The closest comp I can think of on the roster right now is Dexter Williams, and he's even been active for four games, and all four of those games have come since Ryan Grant was signed. So it's not like he was active a bunch in the early part of the season, then Ryan Grant signs, and neither of them have been active since. He's been up for game days and has played since then. I think pretty much the only reason Ryan Grant is still around is because the Packers have been very, very healthy this season. They haven't really had a reason to turn the bottom of their roster this year just because they've had so many guys available for every game. It's been a tremendous blessing for this team, but it also has uh, has led to at least one weird situation, potentially another now that I think of it. The Packers have gone two weeks now with only 52 players on their active roster in the playoffs. Presumably, Raven Green is going to be coming back here at some point, but still, they're only actually carrying 52 players on their roster. That is a a strange situation, but the Packers are just that healthy. Other than the spot of the flu that they're dealing with, it's been that kind of season. They just haven't needed, really, that 53rd spot on their roster all year long. Ryan Grant presumably is that 53rd player, or right now, I guess 52nd player. It doesn't seem like that's going to change anytime soon. While I've got you here, I would like to offer a word on analytics. There's been a bit of a passive-aggressive war over advanced football stats, the analytics community playing out on football internet over the past couple of days. Bunch of the analytics types, you know who they are. If you don't know, probably just keep it that way. You're probably fine. A bunch of them has called the Packers the worst 13-3 and team ever. And a, a bunch of other things talking about how well, the word fraud has been thrown around, fraudulent, whatever. And to be fair, I guess, by their numbers, by the metrics that they use, some of which are good, they're kind of right. I mean, in a historical context, compared to other teams that have gone 13-3, and the Packers have not performed as well in some of those metrics. But the problem with that is twofold. Because the Packers beat the Seahawks and are now in the NFC Championship game. And secondly, the analytics types are not backing down. Idiomatic of this situation is... This video from a pair of pro football focus analysts that prior to the Packers win over the Seahawks declared that people were crazy if they thought the game would hit the over or if they thought the game would be decided by more than a field goal. Well, the over-under in that game was 46 points. The final point total was 51, which is more than 46. 
So us crazy people, if we put down money on that, would have hit the over. The line on the game was Packers by four. The Packers won by five, which is more than four. And it's also more than a field goal. So over two there. But I don't come to tear down analytics or fire one more shot at the Packers versus analytics war. That is just perhaps the most specific example. As you know, we do use numbers a lot on this show. And I think they're a net positive. If you don't have the time or skill to sit down and grind a bunch of tape and come away with meaningful conclusions, a thorough, firm standing understanding of analytics is the best way to know what you're talking about with football. But they're not the only way. And like film, they might be lying to you at times too. So how do we use football analytics in a way that's responsible and actually helpful? Three words. Trust, but verify. There are two parts to that statement. Trust. First, find numbers that are trustworthy. Analytics, like anything else that you read about or talk about or use to understand football, are a tool. So find good tools. If you want to go the analytics route, one of my first choices is always going to be football outsiders. That's something that has been useful for me. Among all the other stats that are out there, their numbers have been the most predictive. A big problem with a lot of analytics is they are more reactive than predictive. They can tell you why something happened, but don't always do a good job of telling you what could happen or will happen next. The numbers compiled at Football Outsiders have done, in my experience, a pretty good job of being able to predict what could come next. If you want to look at some more advanced stats or maybe stats that are just beyond the typical box score, Sports Information Solutions and Pro Football Reference are two other great resources resources that you want to check out. These, of course, are just to start. There are others. But remember that they are a tool. And finding good tools is the first step. These are some good tools. The second part of that statement is but verify. Trust, but verify. You should take nothing in the world of football analysis at face face volume. And I say football analysis, not football analytics, because this goes for film work too. Don't just look at the out-of-context clip on Twitter. Don't just look at the three-second SportsCenter highlight and form an opinion about a guy based on that. Verify things for yourself. For my purposes, verification means putting things in context however you can. Paint the biggest, most detailed picture of a player, a team, whatever that you can. Get the story behind how those numbers actually work, how they came to be. Is this from charting? Is this just from crunching big data sets? What is it? Who compiled it? How do these numbers actually work? This probably means avoiding stats that are a bit of a black box, stats where people aren't showing their work or you can't see exactly how things are calculated. This is why I still fall down on the the passer rating side of the passer rating versus QBR debate. So QBR is a stat that was developed by ESPN a few years ago. They've always 
been super cagey about how exactly it's calculated and they've even changed it a couple times so now it means different things than it did when they first released it when it was i think a lot more useful now i think it's less useful and it was always less useful for my purposes because they wouldn't tell you exactly how the sausage was made with passer rating a very flawed stat you at least know exactly what's going in there you know how it's calculated what plays cause it to go up, what plays cause it to go down, and by how much. It's not a great stat. It's not an advanced metric by any means, but at least you know where it's coming from and how you got there. Analytics should just be part of your picture. You should find trustworthy ones and you should use them to put what you know or what you're learning about a team into context. And no one number should ever be the only thing that you cite. Collect as much information as you can, verify it, then cross-check it with either film or articles or checking with someone who's in the know about what you're trying to learn about. Verify whatever you can. The idea is that you want to get a full picture, relying on only analytics, only on film, only on newspaper columns, only on the talking heads on NFL Network or wherever is not going to get you that full picture. Do whatever you can to get that full picture. And when it comes to analytics, starting with trusting but verifying is the best way to go. That's all I've got for you in this episode. I do appreciate listening in. I really appreciate everybody who takes the time to download one of our episodes and listen in. And I really appreciate all of the listener questions that we've gotten recently. We have had so many of them that I have not been able to get them all into episodes. And in fact, I'm putting together some longer form pieces that will be going up on the powersweep.com in the relatively near future, trying to answer a couple of those. Please keep those coming because that's one of the best ways that we can advance this conversation around the Packers because that is our ultimate goal here. Patreon is great. If you want to support us there, patreon.com slash the power sweep. A dollar per month goes a long way towards offsetting our, our hosting costs and stuff like that. You get access to some bonus content there. But really, write in, tweet in, email in, find us on Facebook, find us on Twitter, wherever. Because like I said, that furthers the conversation around the Packers and that helps everybody become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.